0: Good afternoon. We do preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we've been in the book of Hebrews for about a year and a half now, and we do preach faithfully and expositorily. If we were one of those churches that just did little topical things, I would not pick the text that I have uh, for today. So uh, we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, and it is a warning section, the fourth warning section. Of five in this book, Uh, as I mentioned before, I believe that the writer uh, to Hebrews, which we do not know when we get to heaven, we'll find that out. But he's very pastoral, and he's given so much encouragement. Just recently, hasn't he? That you know, this whole idea. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way, let us draw near and and encourage one another. Right and uh, and now. There's a very strong warning section, and uh, so uh, we need this warning, whether you've been in the Lord for 50 years or five minutes, <laughs> you need this warning, or uh, no matter how long you've been uh, walking with the Lord, and, and I confess uh, this has been a hard sermon to prepare. Well, our passage today re- reveals the reality and nature and danger of apostasy, There are, I've known, apostates. It's a serious matter. We need this warning. And and along with what we'll see here is the reality of hell. And so, again, I don't just want to just preach a sermon on hell, right? But it's in the text that we have to uh, discuss it. The doctrine of everlasting punishment is what hell is. Now, there's different views about hell. For example, a fellow by the name of Chuck Pinnock says, I consider the concept of hell as endless torment and the body and mind outrageous doctrine, the theological and moral enormality, a bad doctrine of tradition which needs to be changed. I hope that does not describe anyone in this room. Okay? That's a complete denial. There's others who say that the punishment and destruction language of hell is that we eventually cease to exist. Annihilationism is what, it, what that's called. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible talks about the reality of hell. First of all, we have an everlasting soul. Just as we are promised everlasting life, Ionius, it's the same word in the Greek, uh, everlasting life, there's everlasting judgment. Okay, So you have a soul, an everlasting soul. And think of these passages, Christ saying, do not be afraid of them to kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. right? And so some of the words of Christ are very strong. Um, think of the rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16. I think we're all familiar with that. Lazarus is carried to Abraham's bosom, but the rich man looks up, uh, lift, or lifts up his eyes in Haiti, being in torment. And so the whole doctrine of future judgment and the New Testament presupposes the fact that we have an everlasting soul. Secondly, punishment for sin. God is holy. And if you don't repent and you're not covered by the blood of Christ, you will be punished. Romans 2 verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, but because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Thirdly, the Bible discusses what this torment would look like a gnashing of teeth outer darkness complete darkness Um, being alone and so you can't hold a biblical view of the triune god if you take this element out in other words how you view god and his wrath against his enemies through everlasting punishment is god a god of love Yes, that's the right answer, right? He is a God of love. Um, but listen to this summary, J. I. Packer and Knowing God, I, I summarized a larger quote, but um, "God's anger against sin is right and a necessary reaction to moral evil, right? You'd agree with that. And God who did not react a God who did not react um, did not react in anger to evil in this world would not be morally perfect. Jonathan Edwards. Um, preached a famous sermon. Some of you know it Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? I think most of you know it. Um, and some people are wrong when they think of Edwards just, you know, standing up there and just berating and scaring these people. But actually, church history tells us that he was very meek and he read that sermon. He just simply read it, which points to the fact that it was the Holy Spirit, those people that. that that basically all practically said, what shall we do? I mean, they were trembling in their seats. And Jonathan Edwards, as it were, as one commentator said, gave them a whiff of the sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale the fragrances of grace. And so to balance that out, right? So today we're going to learn about the nature and the consequences of apostasy. Uh, Previously, the, the writer has described it as a falling away from the living god let's read the text together for if we go on sinning for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would draw near by your spirit even now and meet with us, O God. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to allow this message to come forth with clarity and even anointed by the Spirit And Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to examine ourselves afresh, even this day, and especially for the unbeliever, that Lord, they would come and flee to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've mentioned verses 19 to 25, that encouraging paragraph, one long, complex sentence in the Greek. Uh, We spent three weeks on it. But the encouragements, the three strong encouragements, which the writer includes himself, is, are these. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance, right? Secondly, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. Our faith. And then let us consider how to stimulate one another. Let us consider, that requires mental effort, we talked about last week, uh, to actually think ahead of time, because we all need those spiritual pokes, of which I, I talked about last week. And, and the idea here is uh, of the assembly is the idea of congregating and the congregation itself. And so it's the action and actually what it is. And then if you love God, you will love His people. You will want to be here. You don't mind making sacrifices for those things you love. And remember I even said it, you wouldn't be late for the Super Bowl if you had Super Bowl tickets, right? And so how much more? We're coming to meet with the living God and to meet with each other to encourage one another. But... Oh, by the way, did you do your homework? You were supposed to find two people to encourage and stimulate unto love and good deeds. Hopefully somebody did it. Somebody I know a few people that did it, because I was on the receiving end and blessed by that. Brethren, there's five warning sections in the book of Hebrews. We've already considered uh, three of those. Um, chapter two, verses one to four, there's a warning of drifting, right? And so it's a a warning of drifting. Back in chapter 3, he uses the wilderness generation as a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did when they provoked me. And that warning section goes throughout chapter 3, and some even say all the way to 411, so a large one. Um, Take care, brethren, that, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The third one was chapter 6, and uh, verses 4 to 6 are the core of it. In the case of those who have been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, but have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. So this is the, the fourth. And you know, how I like to like, put some structure so you can think in this structure. The, you might think of it like this. The fourth and the last warning section are bookends, right? And, and they're, they're strong warnings, right? The last one you'll see is, um, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So it's God speaking. And here is uh, the strongest one. But it's between bookends. But then in the, right immediately next week in, in verse 32, you know. but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured with great conflict and sufferings. He goes right back into encouragement. So in between the bookends of these two judgments, chapter 12, verse 25, and the section we're in today, you've got encouragements to perseverance, encouragements to endurance. And what does he do? after encouraging right here the rest of this chapter, chapter 11, Exhibit A, B, C, D, D, you know E, F, G, you know, all these examples of the Hall of Faith. But then at the end of 11, he, at the beginning of 12, he comes to the Par excellence example: Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, right? And then gets to that other warning section. That's just something about the structure. Brethren, we need this warning. Remember, chapter 5 to chapter 10-18 was setting forth Christ as the great and final high priest, replacing the Levitical order, according to the order of Melchizedek, and then from 8 to 10-18 is setting forth Christ as the superior covenant sacrifice, right? And so those two things taken together and those truths that's when he gets to 1019, and this encouraging paragraph. And so in light of those two things, there's an appropriate response. Drawing near to God, holding fast to your confession, not forsaking the assembling. That's the appropriate response. Now the writer gives us the inappropriate response to those great truths, okay? So hopefully that will help as we... Uh, by the way, there is an outline in your... Um, uh, bulletin there if you want to follow along it's a very difficult passage and we must compare scripture with scripture so we're not lopsided um, even our confession of faith 1689 chapter 1 of verse 7 talks about that so it's important that we do that and it's a very difficult passage to preach i spent a lot of extra time till up till seven thirty last night um, we love to speak of god's grace we love to speak of god's love but warning sinners of apostasy in God's wrath is not as popular. And sadly, in the news, even this week, and I'm not making a judgment on this man's soul, Ravi Zacharias and the reports that came out, and um, uh, really uncovering lots of horrible behavior as he was a Christian apologist. You know, when you, when you know somebody for 10 years, and they've been married for 32 years, and they're serving in the church and all of that. And, and I've had fellowship many, many times, a particular man. And after 32 years, falls in love with somebody in his workplace at the hospital, leaves his wife, leaves the faith, gets married, and a total apostate. We've had a few even in this church that has, was baptized and then denied the faith. Um, and so this is a, a warning. We need this warning. <clears throat> so my purpose is simply that we would be warned, but that we would examine ourselves and that we would, those of us who need to, we would find comfort in the finished work of Christ. So, our first of four points today is apostasy is turning away from God permanently. Turning away. The apostate rejects the spiritual privileges he has had. And notice the very first word in verse 26 for that connects us to the preceding exhortations. The writer is very concerned. Notice how he says, not forsaking their own assembling, as is the habit of some, okay? And so he's concerned that these some might continue to go astray and and ultimately prove to be apostates. So his intention is to awaken them, to pull them back, to tell them how they need to be under the means of grace in the context of the local church. He says here, if we go on sinning willfully in the New American Standard, it's deliberately in the ESV and the net and other translations. But listen, it's in the emphatic position, okay? That means it's at the very first word in the Greek, okay? So that, that's the writer's purposely putting emphasis on that. Again, the writer uh, to the Hebrews is, is specific, and in a pastoral manner, he includes himself, as you see here, for if we, right? It's a general, I'm including myself, right? If we deliberately sin, right, there's a danger. So who is an apostate? Well, somebody that's enjoyed spiritual privileges, somebody that has, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? The truth is the doctrine of who God is, who Christ is, right? And the knowledge of the truth is epigenosis, so it's an intensified form of the normal word for knowledge, and it means a thorough knowledge. So, so you've, it's not just somebody that kind of visited a couple times and just never came back. We're talking about somebody that was engaged in the life of the church and studied the Bible and knew the Bible. That's scary, Right? What else? Let's, 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 let's pull out a canvas and apply brush strokes okay, and paint the apostate without the features of the face. It's not just a passing acquaintance. He had a true knowledge, a truth of the gospel. He understood something of the person, and work, of Christ. He even made a confession of faith and maybe and most likely was baptized at some point. What else? He sins habitually and does not repent. 1 John 3.9 says no one who is born of God practices sin, that means continually, habitually, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. He is one, applying new brushstrokes, that enjoyed covenant blessings. Fellowship and laughter with God's people. Singing of songs that maybe even were emotional at times to him. To where he shed a tear, my chains fell off, amazing grace. Singing that with emotion and yet ultimately realizes that he's not truly in Christ. The worship and fellowship with God's people. And and like we said, that's the proper response to the new covenant priesthood of Christ. And just, I thought, I think this bears mentioning. When you miss the meetings of the church on a regular basis, you are more prone to drift away. But it's a cycle because when you drift away, you're more prone to miss the meetings of the church. You see how that works? It's a cycle. I was meeting with a, a friend, a, a good friend, and for lunch about two weeks ago, and. Um, he was hindered from attending church worship for six months, and he told me, you know how you always warn of that? He goes, I experience it firsthand. It's hard. I'm more prone to sin. I'm more impatient. I, like, not being under the means of grace affects you if you're a true Christian. William Lane, in his commentary, says, to neglect the gatherings of the assembly displays a contemptuous disregard for the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Now, I want to make it clear, I know we're all hindered sometimes, right? There's things that come up or whatever that maybe cause us to be late, um, but we're talking a regular pattern here, right? That's what he's talking about. This is not referring to believers who struggle with sin, even maybe a besetting sin of of one nature or another. Whatever your besetting sin is. If you're crushed by that and you come on your knees weeping before God seeking forgiveness, that's a stark difference. This is referring to those who reject the authority of a holy God. This is, a, this is, this is talking about those who, who raise their fist at God, as it were, and stubbornness, and they persist in their sin. You see the difference, right? Well, second subpoint he made a profession of faith but was never truly saved. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2.20 says this, "...and if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better to not have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turning back from the holy commandment delivered unto them." What the true proverb says has happened to them, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, after watching herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. What are some examples of apostasy? Think of the wilderness. Um, those, they were on the wilderness, of which the writer takes chapter 3 and spills into chapter 4 of those warnings. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. What about Judas? Talk about the spiritual privileges. I mean, not only did he have the privileges of of being together with those that love and fear God, but he was together with Christ himself. That's probably the par excellence example. He saw it all. You know, some people say, if only I had more evidence than I would believe. If only I I knew, if only I had evidence that, that God was real, then I would believe. Judas had it right in front of him for three and a half years, right? Also, the fool who spurns God's wisdom, Proverbs 2, verse 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. For those who lead the path of righteousness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil, and rejoice in the perversity of evil, <clears throat> Excuse me, whose paths are crooked and are devious in their ways. Psalm 14, we sung it earlier. Uh, From the Psalter, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What about evangelicals who abandon the faith? Even seminary graduates who forsake the faith, they go back to Rome, they want the liturgy and the candles and the smells and the bells. It happens, it happens a lot in religious and theological circles. I mentioned this before, but about a year ago, a man reached out, and um, t- through the church, and is selling his library, right? Lots of theological reform books, the good stuff, probably a lot that I, I, the, the lot I had already had. But I had to say, so you just moved to San Diego from Pennsylvania. Well, what church are you going to? He told me he lived in El Cajon. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to church. I've denied the faith. That's a sad example of an apostate. Jesus talks about in the parable the soils that... That sometimes people can spring up, right? There's there's signs of life. But the sun comes and withers away their faith. There are terrifying, other terrifying examples. But I want to be clear that if you profess Christ and you're trusting in the finished work of Christ and what He's accomplished on the cross. And you're believing that, that God the Father placed all of your sins upon His Son and that He paid for them all. You are secure in Christ. It doesn't... But, 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 but there's even some that are not believers. That doesn't mean that, that you haven't come to Christ yet. That doesn't mean you're apostate. You can still come and embrace Him. In 1938, around the year I was born, I'm kidding, uh, in 1938, there was a, a, a horrible uh, hurricane that came through uh, Long Island, New York. And anyway, there's this story. It's a true story, actually. A man lived in Long Island. He ordered a barometer from the finest mail order company there is. He took it out of the package, and he's looking at it. It says hurricane. And he's, <laughs> he's banging on it. It still says hurricane. It still says hurricane. He went inside wrote a mean letter to the, to the company, complaining, you sent me a de- defective device. Well, the next day, when he re- returned home from work, the barometer was gone, and so was his house. <laughs> it was the great hurricane of 1938, Long Island Express, Category 3. What's the point of that? What we think cannot happen may happen. So don't make shipwreck of your faith. Our second point, and I'm picking up the speed, the alarming results of apostasy. Look what it says in the text there that, that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Because he willfully rejects the sacrifice of Christ, there's no way for him to obtain forgiveness and a clear conscience before God. He he can't go back to offering bulls and goats. The writer has already displayed that. And there's a big difference between those who maintain their trust in Christ and look to that finished sacrifice when they sin, compared to those who repudiate God's gracious provision in his Son. Verse 27, he he faces a fearful judgment reserved for God's adversaries, but a terrifying, so no longer a sacrifice for sins. But, by contrast, a terrifying or fearful, I like terrifying better, it's a valid translation, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Those who reject this gracious provision of the great final covenant sacrifice, sadly, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. God has shown beyond a doubt that he judges sin. You pick up the Bible, you look at Genesis 1, and you start reading, and how far do you get in before God destroys the whole entire earth except for eight people? What is it? By Genesis 6, it's saying the intent of man's heart was was wicked continually, and God wipes him out. You go a few more chapters, you get to chapter 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The sexual immorality, the wickedness, the homosexuality. You see how God judged Egypt the sons of Korah, and on and on and on it goes. God is just, He is holy, and He will execute judgment on His enemies. See, It even says adversaries here, but that's obviously a quote from Deuteronomy. We already said it, Jesus Himself says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. Later, in Mark 9, he talks about where the worm does not die, where it's constantly gnawing and the fire is not quenched. God has promised that he will judge the wicked. And you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you see that being meted out. The cross of Christ shows that God's wrath is real. It's a wrath against our sin because we're fallen and our great-great-granddaddy Adam, right, So, we are sinners by practice, but we're also sinners by nature. And the cross demonstrates as he poured out his wrath upon his own son, a substitute for us. Charles Spurgeon says the atonement of Jesus proves God's wrath is not a mere trifle. Otherwise, there would have been no need for a savior. Not only the judgment that awaits the sinner who receives this verdict, but also the execution of the judgment is in view here. And I think the writer has Isaiah 26, 11 in mind. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. Actually, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is translated this way. And now the fire will eat up the enemies. Strong language. Zephaniah 1.18, 2 Thessalonians eight, where it says there, "...and to give relief to those who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not ob- know God, or those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord." and from the glory of his power. So that's the alarm, alarming results of apostasy. Come with on our third point. He said uh, in verse 28, let's read it again. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He will have a worse punishment for rejecting the blood of the covenant. Here what we have in verses 28 and 29 is an argument from the lesser to the greater, Okay? And this, this is, if, you don't take, if you don't take anything else away, I want you to be able to see that. Those who set aside the law of Moses were executed. The writer to the Hebrews is displaying a huge contrast as he sets the old covenant over against the new covenant. He, he compares in a sense that, that the, on the testimony of two or three witnesses under the law, of Moses, they lost their life physically, right, is, is more in view there, Versus you deny this, the new covenant, you lose your life spiritually. That's not to say that they didn't lose it, but that's the flow of the argument, okay? It's one of those, how much more, right? I think we saw that back in chapter 2. I want to turn back there. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that you do not drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So it's a how much more contrast there, and that's what he's doing here. Deuteronomy 17, our brother read it for us, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who shall be put to death. And so the lesser argument is in the Old Covenant. If you set aside the law, you were put to death. Pointing to the greater situation that the writer here argues, an even more severe punishment awaits those who reject the New Covenant because they trample underfoot the Son of God. They, they, they regard as unclean and foul the blood of the covenant. They insult the Holy Spirit. That's really a summary of verse 29. Let's look at that. Those who reject the person of Christ and his work, sorry, the person Christ and his work as high priest. Notice the pronoun change. Remember, he's including we, but here he says in verse uh, 29, how much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve? And this apostasy involves those, uh, a direct rejection of three things the person of Christ, the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit who brings the gospel. And he asks in a rhetorical question, how much more severe do you think he will deserve who has done these things, right? And Charles Hodge actually says, there's no imperatives in this section, by the way. There's some before and after, um, but Charles Hodge says if there is to be one, it is the word think. Do you think? Think about that. Think about how much more severe of a punishment Here we have a full description of the sin of apostasy, and we're just going to look at all three phrases, or three participles, right, uh, that describe apostasy. And the first is trampling the Son of God. It's an attack on the person of Christ. Remember, this letter began like this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, "...in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he has made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. What is trampled underfoot is regarded worthless. right? What you step on is dirt, trash, whatever. It's worthless, and that's the idea. William Hendrickson puts it like this, so the sinner figuratively takes the exalted Son of God and grinds him to dirt. to trample, to spurn, to treat with contempt. And and the writer has spoken of the Son of God. He uses that definition here in this text. Son of God so many times. The superiority to the angels, the superiority to Moses, the superiority to Aaron, to the Levitical order, and all of that. And the apostate tramples underfoot the Son of God. John Calvin said, to treat... Him with scorn, by whom we are endowed with so many benefits, is an unpiety, impiety, extremely wicked. Secondly, regarded the blood of covenant profane. This calls our attention just back. This is in recent, um, just the last couple chapters in 9:20. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. That's the quotation from Exodus 24, where the first covenant was. Um, inaugurated and but here it's the idea of just treating that precious blood as common this has to do with counting the work of redemption accomplished for god's people as profane it points to the sacrificial death of christ so when you see blood of the covenant even in the lord's supper that's what we say when we take the cup right and so jesus applied those own words so when you see blood of the covenant it's the whole work of christ now, what about this phrase, by which he was sanctified? By the way, if, listen to my sermon on Hebrews 6, 4-8. Um, to 8. If you want to hear the differing views of these warning passages, I just couldn't cram it in into this one again. But, uh, but I will say this, that those who say you can lose your salvation, which is heresy, mark it well, um, th- this is one of the verses that they use. By which he was sanctified. Oh, he must have been saved, right? That's, that's what some would conclude. No, that's not what that's saying. It could mean two things, and I lean towards the second one. It's the idea that the new covenant sacrifice that the apostates reject as profane is the very thing that actually saves us and sanctifies us. So the very thing by which he could be saved, he's rejecting. Secondly, it could refer to Christ being perfectly set apart. That blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified Um, It could refer to that. John Owen says that uh, who think that the son of God who is sanctified set apart through the blood of the new covenant, just as Aaron was set apart unto God as the priest of the old covenant. So you could take it either way. Uh, It's not losing salvation. (laughs) That's my point. And then thirdly, insulted the Holy Spirit. 9.14, the writer uses the spirit often how much more will the blood of Christ, there's another one of those how much mores, the blood of Christ through whom the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to the living God. Remember the writer told us just back in 1015, the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies to us when he quotes the new covenant promises there. Back in chapter 3, when that lengthy quote to Psalm 95, he says, do not I forget how he says it, but it's the Spirit speaking, and he quotes Psalm 95. So the apostate insults the Spirit. The uh, Peter O'Brien says the adjective eternal in front of that suggests an eschatological realm with the Holy Spirit. Activity, whom, who anointed Jesus, his activity, who anointed Jesus as High Priest and every aspect of his ministry and even his sacrificial death. So this insulting the Holy Spirit is probably related to the unpardonable sin, right? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I look at those as being close together. And those who reject Jesus, obviously, are going to reject his spirit. The totality of these three participles define the persistent sin and attitude of the apostate. And so let's answer the rhetorical question right how much more severe do you think he will deserve who has done these things how much greater of a punishment and so what he's doing is he's he's beckoning the hearers to draw their own conclusions as they examine themselves and maybe even for some today that might have a false assurance that we would examine ourselves and be awakened well, our last point is there. The punishment of the apostate is sure. It is sure. Verses 30 and 31. For we know. Oh, look at that. He goes back to the we now. We know this. We, we know that God is love. We know that God has is, is, is sent Christ to die for us. But we know him who said, vengeance is mine. But we know also that he will actually um, be wrathful to his enemies. Let's read verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This we know, that that God not only bestows grace and grants salvation, but he also punishes disobedience. This is the climax of this severest warning. The writer's argument from the lesser to the greater cautions of high-handed sin against God. And here it's a rejection of the new covenant and therefore no hope of any forgiveness at all. The fuller context of that Deuteronomy, these two phrases that are quoted, a little bit of verse 35, 32-35, and a little bit of verse 36, is the end of the Song of Moses, where there's a warning, right? That they're about to enter the promised land after 40 years, right? That that God will display vengeance in Canaan and, and everywhere else where they would go against the enemies. But also, he's not going to wink at sin from inside the house, right? And so that's essentially what he is... um, And so the writer quotes this to really anchor his argument that those who sin deliberately deserve punishment. The Apostle Paul quotes the same thing in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge for yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay Psalm 94 verse 1, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Um, Nahum 1-2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. So God will judge His enemies. No one escapes judgment. right? Um, You, whose faith are rooted in Christ, and 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 or trusting in his finished work your sins have been forgiven because the son has paid for them all and god's character is that he is holy and just it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god and you could say apart from christ right it's a wonderful thing to fall into the father's hands of love and tenderness and gentleness right that's a wonderful thing and so it's a terrifying thing if you're willfully sinning and doing these things and denying Christ to fall into His hands, those who are at enmity with God should fear and repent. The writer tells us that God's judgment inspires terror, and it's not cruel to warn about that if you're denying Christ. Many in our day have a false and inadequate view of God; it's not balanced, right? And that's why studying the attributes of God can be so beneficial. It's, it's saying the warm and fuzzy things without giving a balance, and that's part of the benefit of expository preaching. You have to tackle and address texts like this. Michael Horton observes that young people get swept away to college that grew up in these willy-nilly kind of churches, and, and it's no wonder that so many of them do what? Depart from the faith, if, if they were so-called faith, right? They walk away from church. They don't want anything to do with that. It doesn't fit the reality that our God is a consuming fire. Later, Moses will say in chapter 12 and verse 21 that he says, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But as a pastor, the the writer here, he warns the wayward, but he encourages the faint-hearted. You see, you might lack assurance of salvation today. And you might even be doubting, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Or, or is, is it's the sin that I see remaining in my life, has it rise to the level that I could be an apostate? And, and that's why the writer quickly turns around and encourages them here, remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by me being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and a lasting one. Then he goes on, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So the encouragement is coming if you are trusting in Christ, you are sec- sec- just as secure as you were before you came in here. Trusting in His finished work. Well, just a couple of final thoughts as we wrap up. Let us heed this warning. We have deceitful hearts. Don't just quickly dismiss it. Let's heed the warning. As Peter says, brethren, be all the more diligent right, to make certain His calling and choosing of you. Second Peter 1.10. Spurgeon <laughs> says, it is... Sh- It is shocking to reflect that a change in the weather has more effect on some men's lives than the dread alternative of heaven and hell. Men are more concerned about a rainstorm coming than they are about examining themselves. Some among us have been Christians for decades. Others, maybe a couple of years, we need this warning. And the 21st century church needs this warning. Those who have become complacent and and, 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 and just really don't take the things of God seriously. And repentance, brethren, is not a one and done. There is that initial, right, coming to the Lord, but it's a continual coming to the Lord. It's a lifestyle for the true Christian. And, and we need to remember to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and then make no provision for the flesh. Next time we'll see that good news And how to prevent apostasy is remembering past faithfulness in your own life, and God's faithfulness, and enduring in that light. But if you're outside of Christ, boy, come to Him. Come to Him. This fiery indignation and all of that is true of those who, who, not only who are apostates, but those who never come to Christ, who die apart from Christ. So come to Him today. That's the good news. Whoever approaches God's throne pleading for the mercy and pleading the blood of Christ, coming with true, sincere contrition and brokenness, he turns away none. He turns away none. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. But you must be those that confess your sins and repent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sobering passage today. Thank you for getting me through it. Thank you for getting us through it, Lord. We do pray that we would have dealings with you And Lord, we do look forward to subsequent messages of strong encouragement from this writer. Lord, we uh, pray that you'd be pleased to bless uh, even our final song as we come to you to sing of your glories in Jesus' precious name. Amen.